When Khan gave a tedious, long, laborious speech, ending up with Vietnam Mung Nam, Vietnam Mung Nam, Vietnam a thousand years, McNamara leaned over to the microphone and said, Vietnam Mung Nam. The American pronounced it has a different meaning in Vietnamese. What he was saying was something like the little duck he wants to lie down. He wasn't aware of the tonal difference. And McNamara grabbed one fist and held them up. And the crowd practically disintegrated on the cobblestones. That's retired General Sam Wilson in a clip from Episode 3 of the Vietnam War. Americans went into Vietnam with a strong sense of who we were and why we were fighting. We were supposed to be the superpower charged with defending the free world from the spread of communism. We forgot to ask ourselves one thing, though. Who were we fighting with? Who were we fighting against? And what was motivating North Vietnamese soldiers if it wasn't the threat of Marxism? To answer those questions, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick asked veterans who fought for North Vietnam and who fought with Americans as part of the South Vietnamese Army. They met Lei Min Kuei, who was inspired by Ernest Hemingway when she went to work on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and Tran Nok Tuan, who warned his American advisor, Philip Brady, not to stand too close to him. Brady was so tall that Tuan worried a sniper might aim for Brady and hit him instead. And when Lynn went to Vietnam with producer Sarah Botstein, she brought back stories Vietnamese veterans have been holding on to for decades. I'm Alyssa Rosenberg, and you're listening to The American War, a podcast about how America lost its way in Vietnam and how Ken Burns and Lynn Novick are trying to help us find our way back. I'm back with Ken to talk about the third episode of their documentary. So, Ken, there's a lot going on in this episode, but I was particularly interested to hear the story of two veterans, Philip Brady, who was a Marine lieutenant who served as an advisor to South Vietnamese troops, and Tran Nap Tuan, who was the South Vietnamese lieutenant colonel Brady was assigned to work with and who now lives in Texas. It was fascinating to hear them talk about their shared experiences. The story that Tuan tells about the Battle of Binh Gia, where the Americans refused to help the Vietnamese recover their dead made me feel retroactively so ashamed. And it made me wonder, do you think that Americans talk about the war and sort of endlessly process our own experience obscures the experiences of the South Vietnamese? You know, I'm so happy you picked up on that. The, the episode is called The River Sticks, and it refers to a comment that uh, just dearly departed uh, Sam Wilson had told us about. He felt as someone in the advisory group that was thumbs-upping and thumbs-downing, you know, stuff that he was against this and that by landing troops in Da Nang in March of 65, it was the River Sticks. But I think in some ways the sort of crux of Episode 3, besides the introduction of Mogi and, and maybe the battles at, at, at Play May and the Yadrang Valley at the end of it, is all comes down to Binja, a, a battle that I'm sure most Americans have never heard of which is hugely important, and I think begins to show the ability of what uh, in, you know, widening our coverage can do to a story. So here we have a Viet Cong guerrilla who is involved shooting at American helicopter and downing it, and shooting at our 
South Vietnamese Marine guy and our American Marine advisor, Philip Brady. And the interaction and playfulness between Tuan and Brady is set up, and it's, it's very much buddy-buddy. But then when it does come down to the nub of things, um, we are behaving like ugly Americans in that regard. And there Tuan is you know, his his comrades are left behind and they've all been sacrificed in ways because they had to go and rescue these four downed Americans. And I think this is going to be uh, a, a trope that is repeated again and again and again, that Americans unwilling to blame themselves or uh, not quite completely comfortable with finding American enemies for what went wrong have made uh, the Vietnamese, the sort of the the, brunt, the South Vietnamese, a kind of a brunt of our of our derision, and so that they were, you know, that while there was corruption at the top of the regime and that infiltrated the military, and we go to great lengths to point that out, that you know these Arvin, as Phil Brady uh, talks about with great admiration, as do others, you know, fought remarkably, and I am humiliated by. Uh, the the episode of the helicopter coming in and going out with just the American dead, but even more so impressed by the extraordinary heroism of Tuan and his three days survival with ants and maggots all over his body, wounded as he shows us on camera the actual wound where the AK-47 put in, as he put it, and, and came out. Uh, this is among the... I, I don't know of a braver human being that we meet uh, in the film, if we're accounting bravery as a certain distinction in the in the field of battle, I mean, I, I, watching the film, I just realized I had not accounted for the South Vietnamese in my no, thinking about no. the war, and I don't know how that. I'll tell you how. It, I mean, I th- I think because we forgot. I mean, this is a country that we, in essence, abandoned at the end of it. Uh, you know, you can hear a tape later on from Richard Nixon, who will explain it really well. We're playing a bigger game, you know, a Russia game and a China game, and Vietnam is sort of losing its significance. And so the whole reason why we went there to support this country, um, that uh, it, when that's abandoned, uh, you know, it becomes very... Uh, it, it doesn't fit into the convenient American narrative. And so in this case, what you do is you demonize your enemy, you make them just black pajama figures coming at you in terrifying fashion, but they don't have lives, they don't have mothers that have sent them there, they don't have, they don't have dramatic purpose, they don't have a life, they just fill up, you know, the bad guys, the endless hordes of, of you know, stormtroopers or whatever it is. And we just sort of felt that, you know, we need to go back and find out who the mother was and, and who the sister was and what the family was like and what they were thinking back home. And and I think that gives dimension to it. And so Bin Jah becomes almost a fully triangulated battle because you're not only knowing the two allies, but you're knowing the enemy on the other side as well. Well, I was wondering if there were things that you were personally curious to learn from the Vietnamese veterans of the war on both the northern and the southern side. I mean, it was so interesting to me to hear how the South Vietnamese felt about their allies because I grew up thinking the war was wrong, so it just never occurred to me that people might be glad that we were there. I mean, I think that (laughs) colonial analysis of America's behavior in Vietnam is not necessarily wrong, but it's incomplete in a way that That's right. had not this occurred is, to me before this the, Well, this is, this is the great, I hope, glory of shedding some of that preconception about what goes on. I've I found it in every film, and I find it's what 
sort of is the engine of my continued interest, not only in the subject of the present film, even if it's lasting a decade in the case of this one, but, but plowing into the other ones is just that, that just the, the free saw you get from that kind of discovery all the time. Yeah, we've, we've, um, we just wanted to sort of say, you know, these people have a voice here, and maybe it's convenient to reduce it to the binary us against the enemy. But isn't it more interesting and more complicated? And isn't it more psychologically confusing to have all of these uh, other elements and then to know what they felt? So I know that Lynn Novick and Sarah Botstein made a lot of trips to Vietnam to do these interviews with Vietnamese veterans. So what was that process like of getting them ready to go off to Vietnam? And more broadly, what was it like to work with them on this movie? Well, first of all, they're two of the most extraordinary human beings I've ever worked with. I've got several different producing uh, sort of groups. They're all phenomenal people, and Lynn and Sarah are among the best. They are super hardworking, and I didn't need to prepare them to go off to Vietnam. I was just sick because I couldn't go. I had had, um, just before the trips were planned in 2011, an operation for kidney stones, and I needed to be as my doctor said, within an hour of a Western hospital, which meant the kind of exploits that they had up and down the full length of, of Vietnam would have been impossible for me. And so I watched them in 2011 and 12 go off. But I also felt confident. I mean, I had a lot of other projects I was working on. So they were not, I was not sitting there pouting or crying, but it, 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 I had supreme confidence in them all. And I think that you know the really great force in this was Lynn saying we need to have these voices over and over and over again. And then what she and, and Sarah were able to uh, get, uh, I think in, in many ways is just the perfect complement to the American story that is the sort of the central narrative of this and makes, I believe, that American narrative much more clearer when you understand things. I mean, it's pretty amazing to look at a Viet Cong guy looking through the the hedgerows at Americans grieving over their dead and wounded and suddenly dawning on him, the Viet Cong, that we Americans had humanity just like us Vietnamese. It's really good to have that come from the other side. It's like giving, it's when you extend dimension uh, to your enemy, they become human beings. Lynn Novick, Ken's co-director, was the person who actually conducted all these interviews in Vietnam. I wanted to know how she made that happen. How did she find the veterans she wanted to speak to? Military records are fragmented in Vietnam, unlike the centralized archives we have here in the United States. How did she figure out what questions she wanted to ask? And what was it like to be an American talking to Vietnamese people about their most difficult and painful experiences from a war where we were their allies and their enemies? I called Lynn to find out what that was like. So I know you had a wish list for people you wanted to interview in Vietnam, people who had been at certain battles like Binh Ja or had certain experiences like working on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. How did you develop that list in the first place? And then once you had that list, how did you go looking for the people that you wanted to sort of fill those roles? You know, it, it, we didn't start out with the list that we then went to fill in. We sort of started off with a much more general list of we'd like to find people who were in combat, people who protested the war, people whose families were divided, uh, family who lost somebody in the war, um, people from different ethnic backgrounds in different parts of the country, people who were involved in covering the war, and, you know, people who maybe 
were nurses or doctors who took care of the wounded, a helicopter, people who flew in helicopters. So we had sort of some categories. But after that, it became a very organic process of discovery. So, in fact, when we, we started off with um, looking for people who, one of the things we were doing was looking for people who covered the war, and we got in touch with Joe Galloway. And he had been a reporter, a very young man who went to Vietnam in 1965. And I met with him, and he had, you know, was willing to be involved in the film. And then he had some ideas of people we should talk to that he'd already talked to. And he said, you've got to talk to my friend Phil Brady. He's got a great story, and you just have to contact him. So I went to see Phil Brady, uh, who was then working for Senator James Webb. He was a senior aide to Senator Webb, so we met in the up on Capitol Hill and sat down and talked with him, and he said... Um, do you know anything about the Battle of Binja? And I said, actually, no. What What was that? So he had to explain to me what the battle was and that he was there. And then he said, and I also have a Vietnamese um, counterpart that you should talk to. And so sort of one thing actually led to another. And um, we ended up interviewing Phil Brady and his South Vietnamese counterpart. And then we went to Vietnam and tried to find a Viet Cong guerrilla who was fighting against them at the same battle. And if we had said at the beginning of the film we're looking for three people who were fought in the Battle of Binja, I had never heard of the Battle of Binja before we started this film. So it's just each um, person was kind of a voyage of discovery, and we just tried to keep an open mind and see where things led. So were there any... I don't know as much about Vietnam as I do about the United States, but were there veterans organizations or any sort of networks in Vietnam that were helpful in tracking folks down, or was a lot of what you were doing sort of this person knows this person, and this is how we're finding this third person? So um, in trying to figure out how to do the kind of work we do in Vietnam, uh, we weren't really quite sure how things were organized there. There are veterans organizations that are regional and that are local, um, and probably by unit as well. Um, They're not as well organized perhaps, as veterans here. So we needed help with that, and we were able to get incredible help with a a man named Ho Dang Hoa, who became our co-producer in Vietnam. And he helped us track down individual veterans, people who were in particular battles or who lived in a particular area or who were um, fought in the war at different times. After a while, he kind of got a sense of what we were looking for, and then when he suggested someone we knew was someone we should talk to. That's got to be a really interesting process of bringing someone in to a fairly established working process and working relationship like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was it was really challenging and exciting and sometimes difficult, I think, for all of us because, you know, um, we were asking the kinds of questions about the war that are not often asked in Vietnam. And so um, to kind of communicate to people that we really wanted to hear the, the, their true experiences, their personal stories, you know, we didn't want to hear the slogans about the war. We wanted to know, we understand what you were fighting for in terms of the big picture of what was at stake, but what was it really like for you day to day? You know, how often did you connect with your family? What did you have to eat? Did you have any friends who were killed? Did you ever see any Americans? Um, did you ever have, you know, what kind of combat memories do you have? What was it like to come home? We, you know, did anyone get wounded? Was it, you know, the sort of day-to-day details of what life was like is what we wanted to know. And that's not the way that they often talk about the war among themselves, if they talk about it at all, which is not that often. I think that is true for most of the people that we spoke with, that they had never been asked. They had never been filmed. They had never been certainly spoken to foreigners about the war in the way that we were wanting to. But I think even to their families and friends, I just think they don't talk about it very much. So um, we had the sense that we were 
um, hearing stories that have never been told or not been told very often, for sure. It must have taken and, a lot of work to get people to open up like that. We were talking to Ben Wilkinson, who I know worked with you in Vietnam. Yes. And he said that he thought you had a meal with every person you interviewed before you started asking them questions. What were those yes. meetings like? Well, you know, there's nothing like sitting down with people and sharing a meal and maybe having a drink and just talking and not talking about the war, per se. We just would talk about whatever, you know, where do you live, you know, how many children do you have, what do they do, you know, what did you do after the war, just sort of, in a way, almost avoid the subject of the war sometimes and save that for when the camera was on, but just get to know each other. But I I vividly remember my first trip to Vietnam, Ben and Wa and I went down to the Mekong Delta, and we met some of the veterans of the Battle of that back who appear in the film multiple times, not just there, but throughout the film. And we went, they had sort of a, a, a banquet for us, I guess I would say. Um, and many people from the town came, and it was under this kind of um, like a pavilion, sort of open air. And they cooked food for us, and there was a soup, and there was some um, sort of some kind of cooked meat, and there was rice wine, and we did a lot of toasting and a lot of um, eating food that I don't know exactly what I ate. And um, Ben said afterwards that the some of the veterans said they were very touched that an American would come all this way to their village and sit and eat with them and eat their food and drink their wine and, you know, just sort of meet with them on their turf, you know, uh, where they live and, and meet them where they are and just be in their world for a little while. And it doesn't sound like such a big deal, but I think it doesn't happen every day. So that was one of my favorite days of working on this entire project. It was really wonderful. You, we, after a while, really, we really did feel like we connected. I bet the food and was amazing, too. The food was amazing. I will remember Wa saying to me, um, don't eat that. And I'd already eaten it. I don't know what it was. It was something with intestines. I don't know. <laughs> so the food was incredible. I mean, it's just the food in Vietnam is amazing. I never got tired of it. It's absolutely delicious and varied and exciting and sometimes rather mysterious. Were there things that you learned from your Vietnamese sources that particularly upended your sense of the war? I mean, obviously making a movie like this is a reporting process, but right. I was curious if there was anything in particular that kind of turned the war you know, around for you. Um, I, there are many, many things I did not know much about their experience before going there and speaking to people. I had done a lot of homework and reading, but I don't think it really sunk in in some ways how incredibly difficult the war was for ordinary soldiers and how heavy a price they paid and sort of how many died and what that meant if you were a soldier in the war. And one of the, you know, there's a lot of stories that are not in the final film, but one of the veterans told us, you know, he went to the South in 19, I'm going to say 67, and he went home in 1975 when the war was over. And when he got back to the North, um, his brother was waiting for him at the airport, but he didn't recognize his own brother because he'd been away so long. He didn't know what his brother looked like. And when he went home to his village, his mother couldn't believe it because she had basically, after so many years of hearing not one word from him, had essentially decided that he had probably died. And every year on his birthday, which is the year, the day that they honored people who died, I think, I hope I have this right, but every year she would have a ceremony on the day she thought he died or on his birthday just remembering him because she assumed he was dead. So even just the idea of that, fighting a war for so long, you you know, being gone, having no contact with your family, not recognizing your own siblings because you haven't seen them or seen a photograph or been in touch with them at all, your mother having thought you were dead, 
and then seeing you. I mean, that those are just things that are, I think, kind of unimaginable for most Americans, and certainly for me, I, I, I had to really digest that to begin to understand what um, what the war demanded of the certainly North Vietnamese soldiers who fought in it, who were going really to a foreign country. I mean, most of them, they were going to a place they'd never been, and they didn't know if they would ever get home again. Before I started this podcast, my lifelong fascination with the Vietnam War had limits. It turns out, I really only knew about the American side of the story. I didn't know about the South Vietnamese soldiers the Americans were supposed to be fighting with, much less the North Vietnamese. As it turns out, though, you can't figure out why America lost a war by only looking at what Americans thought and what Americans did. Learning more about how Vietnamese people experienced the war helped me understand where America went wrong and how sometimes we even hurt the people we claim to be helping. Next time, we'll talk about episode four and some of the Americans whose stories don't always get told. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this, please take some time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Share with friends and family and find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you want to know more about Ken, Lynn, or their documentary, go to WashingtonPost.com slash The American War and follow me on Twitter at Alyssa Rosenberg. This podcast is produced by Carol Alderman and Adriana Lucero with art direction from Chris Rucan. I'm Melissa Rosenberg. This is The American War. If you like The American War, you should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. Or try Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.